0: Our scripture today is from Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Um, It's the third week with the same scripture. Um, Let's let's read. Um, Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the last two weeks, we started a series on Jesus' teaching. And we started with the first five Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And now we're finishing with the last three. We talked about how the Jews at this time felt like God wasn't really with them. And they were longing for the time when God returns to his people and gives the Jews their own king again. They actually felt like they had their own playbook for how to do that, though. About 150 years earlier, a leader named Judah Maccabee led a revolt against the Gentile kingdom that ruled over them. And they were able to successfully set up their own Jewish kingdom that lasted about a century before Rome invaded. In their minds, all they had to do was bide their time, strictly follow the Torah, and wait until God raises up another Judah Maccabee. And then they will violently overthrow the Roman authorities. In fact, they thought that God had raised up a Judah Maccabee and revolted against Rome several times, once in 4 AD, once in 70 AD, and then once in 132 AD. Among the Jews at this time, there were debates about what exactly Judah Maccabee did that made him successful. Ultimately, they really bore down to the heart of what it means to be a Jew. What kind of people are really a part of the people of God? That's the kind of question they were asking. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is giving his own answer, and it's not one that anyone really wanted. In the bulletin today, just like in the last two weeks, the picture shows that no one is really paying any attention to Jesus. And that's really common for paintings of the Sermon on the Mount. Two weeks ago, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn, that was not the kind of thing that the Jews wanted to hear. Jesus was telling them that they needed to repent from their sin and act like the people of God if they, felt conf- uh, if they wanted to be a part of his kingdom. But clearly the Jews felt confident that they were righteous enough already for the kingdom to come. And all they needed to do was scheme up another Judah Maccabee to make it happen. Similarly, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, clearly implying that they didn't already have it. Even worse, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, and blessed are the merciful. What the Jews wanted was the exact opposite of meekness. They wanted a king, like Judah Maccabee, who was able to give them revenge for everything they suffered under Gentile rule. They didn't want mercy because they weren't merciful to them. The Gentiles were not merciful to the Jews. Instead, Jesus was calling them to forgive the world because just one more vengeful kingdom coming out to spill out anger wasn't going to fix anything. They didn't like it, but these are the kinds of people, Jesus says, that are going to be a part of God's new coming kingdom. Take it or leave it. So that brings us to the sixth beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is something, like all the other beatitudes, that the Jews should have already known. The Old Testament is constantly saying that only those with clean and pure hearts can see God. In fact, just like last week, Jesus is practically quoting a psalm, Psalm 24, which says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Deuteronomy says that those who will survive the exile will be the ones who have circumcised their hearts. In other words, they will be the kinds of people who can follow the Torah because they are aligned with God's will. It won't just be that they're normal people who happen to follow the Torah. No, they will have actually become the kinds of people who are inclined to follow the Torah. God will have completely changed them so that everything they are is defined by being God's people. So Jesus is saying, if you want to be the people who came out of the exile and saw God's glorious kingdom, then act like it. A person with a pure heart is someone who doesn't defile themselves with what is evil. The heart, for ancient people, was what governed the whole of an entire person, their actions, their thoughts, and their emotions. The heart is at the center of who you are, I mean, literally. (laughs) Sometimes a person without a clean heart could fake it for a while by following certain rules but eventually their true identity really shines through. Your heart could change and be cleansed, but it would take a while of really applying yourself and doing the right thing. A person with a clean heart has so completely aligned themselves with God's law that they know how to follow it, even when the law doesn't actually say anything specifically about that situation. For instance, a person with a clean heart would know how God would want them to use something like social media even though the Bible clearly doesn't say a whole lot about it because it was written thousands of years ago. A person with a clean heart is also someone who has pure motivations. They're not doing the, wrong, the right thing with ulterior motives, just waiting ultimately to sin in the end. But again, most of the Jews hadn't cleansed their hearts. You can see it all through Jesus' ministry, that he's pointing out how people like the Pharisees might be able to fake a clean heart for a while, but actually when push comes to shove, they're just play acting. In fact, that's what the word hypocrite originally meant. It was used for actors in ancient plays. A hypocrite is someone who acts like they have certain principles, but in reality, they only believe it when it suits them. Their actions show that that's not who they really are. They're wearing a mask. They have ulterior motives. It's no accident that Jesus is constantly calling the Pharisees hypocrites. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then that, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appeared righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." The Pharisees love to make a show of following even the tiny minutia of the Torah. That way, people can look at them and say, wow, that guy tithes some herbs? He must really take God seriously. But that tiny stuff is the easy stuff. It's really easy to put some herbs in an offering plate. It's really hard to sacrifice yourself for God and neighbor. On the other hand, they don't even begin to follow the most important commandments. They act like they believe in the Torah, but really, they're just using it for their own advantage. We do the same thing, though. We love to make a show of doing the smallest and easiest part, parts of being a moral person in God's kingdom. But we have a really hard time doing the most important and hard things. We love to be the kinds of people who go to church every Sunday. But sure, but do we, what do we do about the poor? What do we actually sacrifice? Beware of this, because it's incredibly easy to do it. It's so easy to convince yourself that you're acting righteously by doing just some of the tiny stuff that that doesn't ask you to sacrifice much but an hour of your time. And use that to excuse yourself from doing the most important things. Because the important things tend to be the hard things. Seventh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. There's one thing in this verse that I think you would find a little bit more meaningful if you put yourself into the shoes of an ancient person. In our world, children grow up, and normally either of their parents both go to work during the day, or one parent stays home and takes care of them. Then they go to school, and at school they're taught a little bit of everything until they figure out what they want to do with their lives, which is hard. (laughs) Um, It was a little different in the ancient world. There you grew up in your house. And if you were a daughter, you pretty much would shadow your mother until you grow up. You made food, you plant a garden, you made clothing. Basically, daughters do all the stuff that mothers traditionally did until they get married and do it themselves. And then they have kids, and then the cycle continues. It was similar for sons. You would basically shadow your father the whole day as your father carries on the family business. If your father was a carpenter, you as a son would learn carpentry. If your father was a farmer, you as a son would learn farming, and you get the point. You see that in our world, there's kind of an exploration phase for kids, and then they might go off and live somewhere thousands of miles away or end up doing something completely different. In their world, there really wasn't that kind of thing. If you were a daughter, you were just expected to do what your mother does. If you were a son, you were meant, just expected to carry on the family business like your father does. It probably wouldn't have crossed your mind to do anything different. It's basically already been modeled for you by your parents what it means to be a man or a woman in their society, so there's no real reason to question it for the most part. And that makes a real difference in the way that you see what it means to be a child of God. We see child of God, and all we think of is the relationship between a parent and their child, how the parent loves their child and raises them. And that's true. But what they would see is that the child has a much closer tie to the parent. The child isn't just expected to fulfill a role in a certain relationship. They're meant to carry on the family business. Your father is a carpenter, well, then you're a carpenter. Your father is a fisher, then you're a fisher. You get the point. For that reason, it made sense that Jesus would say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Because the peacemakers are carrying on the family business. Your father is a peacemaker, well, then you're a peacemaker. You can properly be called a son of God if you do the things that God your father does. It's a wonderful image and even a bit obvious when you take it at face value. Is God a peacemaker? Yeah, sure. Do sons and daughters do what their parents do? Absolutely. So then are the children of God peacemakers? Wait, hold on on a minute. Because this, once again, is absolutely not what Jesus' audience wants their Messiah to say. Calling for peace simply wasn't part of the zeitgeist of Jesus' time. The Jews knew what they want their Messiah to do and to be. They had a model of it. Once again, they wanted Judah Maccabee, the guy who overthrew the Greek government and that had been oppressing the Jews. In fact, there were tons of false messiahs at the time rising up and being torn down. And they all basically were trying to be another Judah Maccabee. They wanted war. And sure, they knew that God loved peace and that war is fundamentally against God's created intention and that they didn't like it when war happened to them. But now's not the time for that. First we'll b- burn the world down, then we'll make peace with the ashes. I wasn't quite old enough to remember it, but from what I hear, it would be kind of like if you were calling for peace in October of 2001. Maybe some of you have that exact experience. I honestly have a hard time blaming you if you wanted blood for 9-11, especially if you lost someone you loved. But think of being the person even asking the questions like, what exactly are our goals here? How do we make sure innocent people aren't hurt? How long do we plan on having troops on foreign soil? During the patriotic patriotic fervor and anger and desires for vengeance that happened after 9-11. I have to admit that even this year I felt caught up in the war in Ukraine. I wanted to believe that there was a fighter pilot called the Ghost of Kyiv, who was shooting down all kinds of Russian planes. I had a hard time not rooting for Russian soldiers to be killed. War is terrible. But it's also exciting, and it's hard not to get caught up in the excitement when everyone else is. Visions of war are cathartic when you're angry. But our God is a God who actively works to bring peace and reconciliation. He did it at his own expense on the cross. And if we're really his children, then we do the same. If there's conflict, we take our own expenses to sort them out. We don't let grudges and resentment form, and we certainly don't call people to violence. That's not what our father taught us while we were shadowing him in the shop. We're peacemakers. It's the family business. Eighth, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Maybe on your first read, you would think that this would be the most controversial beatitude. Nobody wants to be persecuted, right? But this last beatitude would actually be the first one that Jesus' audience actually would like, at least if it were alone. The problem with the Jews of Jesus' day was not that they weren't zealous enough for their identity. It wasn't that they weren't willing to undergo persecution, at least when we're talking about the peasant Jews who probably would have been Jesus' audience. The Jews were in the middle of a run of three centuries where they fought four major wars for independence. About five or 10 years after Jesus was crucified, the Romans barely pacified a revolt when Caligula insisted on placing a statue of himself in the temple, because the Jews were completely unwilling to put up with it. They probably were thinking, oh yeah, it's Judah Maccabee time again. Don't mess with our temple, you know? Finally, we've hit something that Jesus says the, the Jews like. This is what everyone was saying. We have to be willing to suffer for God's kingdom to come. We need to stand up for what we believe in. Let's take up arms and make this kingdom thing happen. This may as well be word for word what the Maccabees preached. And Jesus sounds like he's agreeing with them. Finally, Jesus, you're getting to something good. But I imagine that really wasn't their reaction. Jesus was speaking words that felt like they were, spo- they were, felt- felt like they were supposed to like But he's put it in a frame of every other beatitude, which makes it almost more offensive than anything else that has come before. Because Jesus wasn't saying, we have to be willing to endure persecution from these Gentile nations when we fight against them, and then we will be given a great reward. That was what everyone was preaching during those days. No, he was preaching that you'll be given a great reward when you suffer persecution at the hands of your Jewish brothers and sisters. The they and the others that Jesus is referring to are other Jews. And Jesus' audience might not have really recognized what Jesus was saying until the last couple of words when he says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Who persecuted the prophets in the Old Testament? Certainly not Gentiles. They couldn't care less what some random prophet from some backwater town who worships some small-time God had to say. No, the ones who persecuted the Israelite prophets in the Old Testament were their fellow Israelites. They didn't like what they had to say. The Israelite prophets very rarely had a whole lot of good news. They spoke on behalf of God. And most of the time, God was saying that they, needed, that they were messing up and that they weren't being the kind of people that God was calling them to be. And if they didn't shape up, then God was going to send some kind of disaster. The Israelites hardly ever listened. They most often persecuted the prophets, and the disaster almost always came. Being a prophet for Israel was a hard job for this exact reason. And they very rarely, according to Jewish tradition, died of natural causes. And that's the kind of thing that God's people are called to. It's one thing to face the hatred of people you hardly know. It's an entirely different thing to face the hatred of people you've known forever and maybe even admire. It's a whole nother thing to face that hatred with meekness and gentleness and forgiveness in your heart. Sometimes being faithful to God not only means running afoul of outsiders, it means other Christians are going to be angry with you, and that's hard. But Jesus assures us that that doesn't mean that God is angry with us, because people like the prophets and even Jesus himself faced exactly that kind of hatred. In the very last couple of words of this part of Jesus' speech, he also drops both a strong indictment and a heavy warning. He's basically saying, if, you, if you're going to disagree with me and if you're going to ignore what I say, you'd better be sure about it. You can't just ignore me because you don't like what I've been saying. That's what your forefathers did, and that's how you got into this mess. You know the tradition well, as well as I do. And if I were to come as a false prophet, wouldn't you think that I would be telling you something you actually wanted to hear? It's really good advice, generally. If someone is telling you something you don't want to hear you can probably bet that they don't want to say it, but they feel like they have to. So it's always a good idea to think through what they're saying thoroughly. Sure, maybe they're wrong, but it's pretty rare that people say stuff like what Jesus is saying with an ulterior motive. Jesus has just described a radically different way of being Israel than what everyone else was describing at this time. And it turned out it was so different that Israel completely rejected it and they killed him. And instead, it was adopted by a whole new group called the church. The kingdom of God was coming, and it was coming through Jesus himself. He was the king, but nobody that was originally part of God's people wanted any part of it. In fact, they hated it, and they did everything they could to get rid of it. So instead, the kingdom expanded through the whole world, all in accordance with what the Old Testament said would happen. Jesus was saying that what it looks like to be a citizen of God's coming kingdom was to be merciful and loving and forgiving, to seek peace even when it came at a huge cost to yourself, to purify yourself before you go trying to purify the nations. In other words, being a citizen of God's kingdom looks like radical selflessness, giving yourself up in service to to the good of those around you rather than what might feel good to you. It looks like making yourself a servant rather than making yourself king. Worst of all, it looks like being persecuted by the very people that were supposed to be your friends, who stand to benefit the most from what you're preaching to them. In other words, it looks like Jesus' entire life, right up until the moment he died on the cross. And when you're someone who's had every opportunity stolen from you, who's boiling over with centuries of resentment and he finally wants to taste some of the power that's been wielded against you, it's easy to see how you could find this kind of kingdom to be a disgrace. But that's the kingdom that's here, take it or leave it. But again, when we really think about it, we see that Jesus was right all along. If this world has any hope for the future, it's not going to be in just another power-hungry king that stoats the angry of a power-hungry people so that they can go and kill and maim the power-hungry kingdom that they're replacing. Over the last couple of millennia of human civilization, I think we can conclusively rule out this approach. Look, maybe I'm wrong, but I, think, I just think that we've tried the bloodthirsty, vengeful king angle a couple million times, and maybe we should go for something different. What Jesus is describing is a different kind of kingdom. It's one that conquers, but not by spilling the blood of its opponents, but by spilling their own blood. They don't just love those who love them and hate those who hate them. They actually pray for those who persecute them. They don't repay evil with evil. They repay evil with good. They bear with persecution and with false accusations without revenge, knowing that they will be vindicated by God when they are resurrected in the last day. To paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, they don't, fight with, they don't fight because they hate what's in front of them, but because they love what's above them. They don't talk about what, how far away people ha- don't have their stuff together, but they hunger and thirst in hopes that someday they themselves will become the people they're supposed to be, and that God's reign of justice would come to the world through them. And you might think that that all sounds impractical, but the conclusive proof that this works came when Jesus rose from the dead, triumphing over sin and death and all in one fell swoop, and liberating his people from bondage to evil. And he did all of this by shedding only his own blood. It's not easy to be this kind of person. There are days when it doesn't feel like it's worth it. It almost feels contrary to human nature to actually want to be this kind of person. But actually, it's only contrary to our nature when it's corrupted by sin. But gee, that really only shows how corrupted we really are, doesn't it? In fact, there's only one person who's ever succeeded in being the kind of person that Jesus describes, and he happens to be the one that's preaching it. He did it his whole life. But it was most exemplified when a mourning, meek Jesus, hungering for the righteousness of his people, made peace between God and humanity by, the, by being nailed on the cross. But in so doing, he gave us the righteousness that he had fought so long for, while bearing the punishment and persecution and accusations that we deserve. That way, we are forgiven all of our failures to live up to what we're supposed to be. But even more, we're freed from the sin that keeps us from being a citizen of that kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we cannot be the people you want us to be on our own. Transform our hearts so that with purity we can represent your kingdom to the world, so we can be blessed forever with your presence. Amen.